0: I invite you let's turn our bibles to the book of exodus chapter 20 the book of exodus chapter 20 actually what phil was praying when he says under the word of uh, Rian's word i actually thought that's actually not completely wrong because even you know the inspired word has been people men spoke as they were carried along by the holy spirit so there's a real sense in which god even with the inspired word used, the spirit and men, right? It's, it's Paul's word and it's God's word at the same time. But I don't carry that authority, right? And, but, um, but we can sit together under God's word as well and grow together as we hear this. So, so we are, Lord willing, in a few weeks, covenanting together as a church on the 13th of March. And one of those documents that we are going to agree together is what we call our church covenant. Now, some of you have, have legitimately asked, but where do we see this? What is a church covenant? Why do we have to affirm a church covenant? Well, if you understand what it is, I think it's, it makes sense. Because Just to put it simply, our statement of faith is what we say, what we believe as a church, what, 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 we, well, what doctrines we are going to uphold, and our church covenant simply is how we are going to live as a church. That's basically what it is. And the word covenant just shows us the seriousness of this. This is the, our new covenant commitment. We are no longer under the old covenant. We belong to Christ. We have been redeemed. And yet, even under the new covenant, there is a law to obey Jesus. Jesus's law of love, right? Love God and love your neighbor. So I believe every church should have something like a covenant, although they might not call it a covenant. Every church should have some form of this is what we expect all Christians and all members specifically to be able to do or to do and to commit. Therefore, we are pausing our series on Mark for a few weeks and we'll be focusing on our church covenant so that our commitment will be meaningful. When we do eventually commit together that it will be meaningful and that we would understand it and it will be thoughtful when we do it. But I want to say by focusing on our covenant, we will not be studying some interesting document about what HPC Poch does or believes or is going to do. Our covenant is simply how every single Christian must live. We just make it clear what we believe that should look like. If you have noticed, our church covenant is based upon the Ten Commandments. And the reason why we base it on the Ten Commandments is because what God expects of us is summarized by the Ten Commandments. And... If you want to summarize it even further, how is the Ten Commandments summarized? With the Great Commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments is all about loving God. The last six commandments is all about loving your neighbor. So for this sermon, we're not going to look at the first of the Ten Commandments. We only I want to do a big introduction on obedience we're going to look at obedience together obedience to God drives the seriousness behind our commitment we obey we commit to Jesus that's a word that has become very rare in our culture right commitment and but when you read the New Testament when Jesus said follow me that wasn't a loose kind of a connection with Jesus it's a commitment it's it's almost like a marriage you know, I kind of sort of kind of decide to take this wife, woman as my wife or see how it goes in five years and then we can decide again. Like that that's not a marriage, right? In the same way, when you become a Christian, it's not like, okay, I'm going to see how it goes. No, you either all in. You give until death unites you to Jesus. So that's what we want to do. I, wanna, I want us to consider obedience, why is obedience so important as a christian why should we talk about this why study the law when we are not saved by the law or we are no longer under the law but i hope it will make, it will be clear as we move along so let's just read and hear again god's word the ten commandments and remember this is god's word and let's read together from verse 1 up until verse 17 exodus 20 verse 1 and god spoke all these words saying i am the lord your god You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That's the reading of God's word. Let's just pray together. Father, you are a holy God. Lord, you deserve our worship, our obedience, our utmost best For Lord, you have made us. We are your creatures. Lord, what an arrogant thing to do, to sin against you. The God who gives us life and breath and everything to enjoy. Lord, how wicked are we to ignore you, to not give you thanks, to live as if you are irrelevant. Father, please forgive us, grant us a humble heart. Help us, Lord, as we study the Ten Commandments together as a church. I pray, Father, help us to to truly see the weight of our calling, but not to be crushed under the weight of our calling, but to look to Christ as not only our Savior, but our Lord and our Shepherd and the one who will give us strength to obey. So, Lord, come and magnify your name and instill in our hearts a holy fear of you that will worship you and obey you even in secret when nobody sees us. Father, come and do that for us and in us. By your spirit, we pray. Amen. So, Father, we're just going to look at three aspects of obedience. So, three aspects of obedience. We're going to look at the necessity of obedience, the nature of true obedience, and then the motive, some motives why we should obey God. So, let's consider firstly the necessity of obeying God. The absolute necessity of obeying God. Now, there are generally two gospel errors that we should avoid we should, that we can make with the true gospel. The first one is the all too common error of thinking that our works can save us. If I give my tithe every month, if I get baptized, if I do X, Y, and Z, if I'm just a, a, a faithful church member, then I'll be sure, I'll be good enough, I will make it, I will go to heaven. In other words, salvation is earned by our works, or salvation is the reward for the righteous. That's what we think. And this gospel error has been championed, you could say, have been contradicted by Paul. Paul is like the main apostle that has fought against this heresy. Romans three verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, that's the purpose of the law. Firstly, not to save you, but to show you how bad you really are. You see, the law isn't supposed to just be a checkbox that you check and say, okay, I'm fairly good. No, if you break one of the laws, you are guilty. You deserve God's wrath. You are under his curse. Right? That's the first purpose. It brings us knowledge of our sin. It doesn't justify us. Or Galatians 3 verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You see, you can't. if you want to be justified by the law, you must do, you must do all of them, not just some of them. That's why Paul says you're under a curse. So it's clear we cannot save ourselves. It's impossible to be justified before God by works of the law. Listen, if you could be good enough, if you were able to save yourself, if you were able to justify yourself by works of the law, why did Jesus have to come? Why was he necessary? If you were able to change your own heart, why do you need Jesus? Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 is a good summary, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. Let that sink in. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Salvation is all of God, so God gets all the glory. Amen? Amen. So that's the first gospel error we should not make and we should avoid. We're not saved by works of the law. We shouldn't seek to be saved or to earn God's grace and favor or merit through our works. But the second gospel error is no less serious than the first one. And it's almost the opposite extreme. And that is the thinking that because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that means we can now sin as freely and as much as we want. Someone might hear the true gospel and say, oh, sweet. So I'm not saved by my works. It's not about how good or bad I am. It's about Jesus' righteousness alone, what he has done, his death, his resurrection. That's all. Wow. I can't wait to go sin." I can't wait. Hey, let's magnify God's grace by sinning more because the bigger sinner I am, the more grace it's going to take to save me. So let's just make God's grace look massive by my sin. Let's go. We have fire insurance, right? But listen, what is wrong with that type of thinking? Isn't it true that we're not saved by our works? Right? So what's wrong with thinking That we can go sin as much as we want because we're not saved by what we do, right? And here's the answer. Why is that wrong? Because when you repent and trust in Christ, you don't receive him only as your savior. But also as your Lord, as your God, as your king. The one who has the right, the authority to command you to do what he says. And I would say that's a very undervalued attribute of christ or a statement of christ that he is king he is lord you must submit to him or he will break your knees right that's an element that we don't like to talk about of christ and and the the reality is you cannot just accept parts of jesus you can't just accept the grace of christ and reject the commands of christ Really, I think this is what a big problem in the Gospels, in the gospels were. They, the crowds loved Jesus when He did the miracles. And once He started telling them what they must do, or what God expects of them, they all left. And then Jesus even turned to the disciples and said, do you want to leave as well? You see, that's the thing. You cannot accept Jesus just as your Savior. There actually is a very serious teaching In in some Christian circles that says you can accept Jesus as your savior, but only later can you accept him as your Lord. Meaning it's even possible to be truly saved and live in your sin until death and enjoy it and treasure it. Because you've never really accepted Jesus as your Lord. That's a matter of discipleship. But that is the second gospel error we must Oppose. We are not saved by our works, but our works shows that we are saved. We are not saved by our works, but our works shows that we are saved. In other words, without works our faith is dead. Does that sound familiar? Because the second apostle, so if Paul championed the the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, James championed the second gospel era of saying that works is absolutely necessary for our faith. To be justified. Listen to James 2 verse 14. It's very clear what he says here. He says. What good is it my brothers. If someone says. This is someone who speaks. Someone says he has faith. But does not have works. Can that faith save him? Do you hear what the true issue is? The issue is not. Whether you're saved by faith. Or saved by works. The question is. Can that faith. The faith that has no good works, can that kind of a faith truly save someone? The answer is no. So James is asking what type of faith, what kind of faith is the faith that saves us? And James says it's the faith that works. James 2 verse 26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And Paul would agree. Paul would agree with James because he wrote in Galatians 5 verse 6, this is probably the most Jamish verse of Paul about how your faith without works is not justifying faith. Listen to Galatians 5 or 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's the only faith that justifies, the faith that works through love. And since love is the summary of the law, you could say, Paul is saying, only faith that obeys is true, saving, justifying faith. So here's the summary. We've, we've watched this on um, the American Gospel, Christ Alone. It's so well said, and I want to repeat it. He says, good works is not the root of our salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation. It's not the root. It's the fruit. Good works and saving faith are intimately connected, and you cannot separate them. Now listen to me. This was even true of the Old Testament because some have said that in the Old Testament because it's so much focused on the law and on works and on deeds that people there were saved by works but now in the new covenant in the new in the church age people are not saved by works but saved by grace alone. That's false. How was Abraham justified? Before circumcision? Or after circumcision. right? Paul says before circumcision, he was justified, he was saved. His faith was counted to him as his righteousness. And this is even the pattern of Exodus 20. Look at verses 1 to 2 of Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What did God do first for Israel? He saved them. He redeemed them from slavery to Pharaoh. The blood of the lamb was how they were were spared from God's wrath and God's judgment. They passed through the water, through the Red Sea. And now they're at the mountain ready to covenant themselves with God as their God. That happened first. The redemption happened first. And then comes verse 3, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, the order is so important. And it's the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New God first saves us and then obedience follow but they are linked salvation and obedience are linked so serious is this error if you throw if you make this second gospel error to think that works is unnecessary because we're only saved by grace through the works of Christ you are not going to heaven Jesus himself listen to his words in Matthew 7:21 Not everyone who says, again, listen again to this emphasis of people that just confess. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Can you complete the verse? Who does the will of my Father. Jesus, do you believe someone is saved by works? No. You're saved by faith in Jesus, but the evidence of that faith will be doing the will of the Father. So it's not the talkers that are truly saved. It's the doers. Those who obey. Merely talking about theology. Merely talking about the Bible. Merely talking about God. Is not evidence that you are saved at all. It's obeying God. That's why Jesus even said in Luke 6.46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But do not do what I tell you. You see. What's the evidence that you believe that Jesus is Lord? You do what he says. Jesus is not your Lord if you do not obey him. And if he's not your Lord, he's not your savior. You cannot have a half Christ. And that's what Romans, I think Romans 10 verse 9, sometimes people use this as well to defend that it's okay to just you know, not have repentance, but there's a key word in here that I think people miss. Romans 10 verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What must you confess to be saved? Not Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. In fact, doing what Jesus says is merely proof that you love him. That's merely the evidence that you love him. Jesus said again in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice, he's not saying do what what I command. He says, if you love me, you will do this. You will obey my commands. It's the inevitable result of loving Christ. If you do not obey Jesus, what does that mean about you? You do not love Jesus. No obedience means no love. There is a type of Christianity that think it's enough to just speak about God. Just talk about Him. While not living for God in holiness and in obedience and in the fear of God. That is a functional denial of Christ. Titus 1.16, a very scary verse. It says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. It's possible to deny God by your works. 2 Timothy 3.5 is. Talking about the, how how the end times would be, which I think we are in right now, he says people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Test yourself: Is that you? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Having a, a, the appearance of godliness but denying its power. See, beloved, God demands obedience, even above sacrifice even above your gifts, even above your talents. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two. Saul thought he could please God by just sacrificing some of the animals, but what was the issue? That's not what God said he must do. So Samuel confronts Saul and he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Obedience trumps gifts, trumps great sacrifices. Or to put it in 1 Corinthians 13, if you give up your whole body to be burned, if if you have all knowledge and you have not love, it's nothing. It means nothing. It's worthless. And this verse, actually, Mark and I have been speaking about this, really has been helping me with my parenting as well. Because obeying God is to honor God. And listen to what Malachi 1 verse 6 says about Honoring God. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? You see, to honor your parents as children, it means to obey them. So a father can say, my honor is my, obedience, my children obeying me. So God says, if I am a father, where is my honor? Where is my obedience? Shall we obey our parents and disobey God? What about Ecclesiastes 12, 13, right? The summary, I love this verse. It's the summary of our entire duty. If you wonder what must I do, listen to this verse. It's so good. It says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. I love that. Nothing else. Don't do anything else with your life. But obey Him. Fear God and obey His commandments. And guess what? You're living a perfect life. I find that very encouraging, you know? Nothing more. Don't worry about your life except in this way. Are you fearing God and obeying Him? Beloved, this is God's Word. This is what He says. This is what He demands. We must obey Him and follow Him. It's necessary. It's the result of our salvation. So that's why Jesus could make those statements that if you do not obey, you're not going to heaven. So let us make it firm in our hearts. Obedience is necessary. But secondly, let's now consider the nature of obedience. What does true obedience that pleases God look like? So we know obedience is necessary, but now let's consider what what are some of the elements. I just want to say this is not an exhaustive list, but I would say some of the key elements what our obedience must look like. So first, our obedience must be willing obedience. Our obedience must be willing obedience. God desires your heart in your duty. In fact, he desires your heart so much that if your heart is not in your obedience, he does not accept your obedience. Matthew 15:8 This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far is far from me. Psalm 100 verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. You see, we must serve the Lord with cheerfulness, with willingness. Under the old covenant, people were frequently bringing their, their free will offerings as a sign of their love and their devotion to God. And now under the new covenant, our, our body is our free will offering to God. Romans 12:1 it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So our obedience to God, for it to be pleasing to God, must be willing. Our hearts must be in our obedience. Number two, our obedience must be extensive. So it must be willing, and secondly, it must be extensive. To obey God means you obey Him in every area. There's not like that one area where you could say, I enjoy obeying God in that, but that area I'm going to keep for myself. No. In public and in private. I love what Thomas Watson and in his book, "The Ten Commandments." It's for free, by the way, so you should download it and read it. Um, he gave this excellent example of an Old Testament law about how our fear for God should cause us to obey Him in every circumstance. Leviticus 19 verse 14, he says, "You shall not curse a deaf, the, curse the deaf, or put the stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord." Think about that command he says. Don't curse the deaf. But who will hear if you curse the deaf? No one, right? Who will see if you put a stumbling block before the blind? No one. So why should you not do that? I am the Lord. Fear the Lord. You see, God sees your cursing. God sees you're putting the stumbling block, even though no man might ever know what you have done. So our fear of God must cause us to avoid sins that nobody will ever know even in those areas that we could legitimately get away with, we should say no because we fear God. Remember what Joseph did with Potiphar's wife as well? How can I do this great sin against God? He was alone. And he said, I can't do it, God. I fear God. So our obedience must stretch into every area of our lives, our hearts, in our workplace, in our families, our marriages, our Children, our parents, our singleness, our relationships. And guess what? Our obedience must even stretch to church. Jesus has given us specific commands to obey him that can only be obeyed inside a local church. The one another commands, commands to church leaders to preach the word, to submit to your leaders, to obey them. You see, those, uh, those commands is, are impossible to fulfill outside of the local church. In other words, if you do not belong to a church, your obedience is not yet extensive. It's not yet complete. But that's what true obedience looks like. It seeks to obey God in every area, no matter what he says. We obey. We seek him. So our obedience must be willing. It must be extensive. And thirdly, our obedience must be done in and through Christ. Our obedience must be done in and through Christ. And this gets back to that first gospel era that we've talked about. It's not our obedience that merits God's acceptance of us. It's So important to just clarify that once again. Our obedience is only necessary in the sense that it proves our faith. But it's Christ's work, his work, his death, his resurrection that merits our acceptance with God. And then even in our obedience, we don't rely on our power, on our strength, on our wisdom to obey. We rely on Christ. He is the only way we can obey God in a pleasing way. Remember John 15 verse 5? I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit for, apart from me you can do nothing. And I love Paul's example as well. Paul says, I have tasted what it means to be poor. I've tasted what it means to have abundance. I have been have a lot of money. I have no money. And I've learned the secret to be happy in that, to be content. And you might ask, Paul, what's your secret? How did you get it right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, Jesus was his treasure. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So my life is about Christ. If I die, I make a profit because I get Jesus on the other side. I can lose everything and if I have Jesus, I gain everything. We we cannot obey without Christ. We need Him. We need His Spirit. So rely on Him and rely on His righteousness. Stand on that and then obey. Lastly, our obedience is simply summed up in loving God and loving our neighbors. We've already said a little bit about that. But your obedience must have love in it, for it to be true obedience. That's really the summary of all the commandments. Romans 13 verse 8, O no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Just love God and love people. That's it. And it's really love that makes our obedience light. Listen to 1 John 5 verse 3. It says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome burdensome that this is an easy test you can take to see if you love jesus or not are his commandments burdensome to you is it burdensome to read the bible for you is it burdensome to pray is it burdensome to come and belong and to commit to a church is that is that a burden for you is it a burden for you to worship god Then you have forsaken your first love. Repent and come back to your first love. Come back to Him. Loving and delighting in God is the secret of making our obedience light and sweet. Think about a marriage. If I may use a marriage again, a husband that loves his wife. His acts of service for her is is joyful. It's willing. It's it's light. I I enjoy doing this for you because I love you. Same. Vice versa, a wife that loves her husband, she rejoices in helping her husband and serving him. So lover, do we love God? Do you love God? Do we love one another? That's the summary of our commandments. So we've looked at the necessity. The nature of true obedience. And now lastly, let's close our time together with just considering some motives. Why should we obey? Why should we seek to, be, to stretch our obedience into every area of our lives? And I'm just going to mention a few. Again, this is not exhaustive, but obviously the first and the, four, the most important one is the one I just mentioned, love. Love for God is the greatest motive. But God also gives us other motives to encourage us to obey. The first one might surprise you. God One motive to obey God is because God threatens great punishment if we do not obey God. It is a fearful thing to disobey God. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Have you ever thought of the gospel as something that must be obeyed? See, but that's what the text says. It says, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel, they will suffer the wrath of Jesus when He comes in, His, in, 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 in vengeance. And they will be cast away, separated from His glory forever and ever and ever that's how horrible sin is and remember when God gives a punishment for sin it actually fits the crime meaning eternal punishment is fitting that's how horrible sin is it's just for people to suffer forever so we should should fear God we should forsake sin because it's horrible to sin what about Jesus' own words remember what he says if your eye makes you stumble pluck it out, why? why should we do that? Why be so uncomfortable in this life? Because it's better to have one eye than to go to hell with two eyes. Or better to cut off your hand if it makes you stumble than to go to hell with two hands or two feet. To make peace with sin, to accept and then to blame your eye or to blame your hand or to blame your feet is another way to embrace hell. But at least this is one motive we should really take seriously. God promises great threats of punishment if we disobey Him. So let us fear Him. But second, second motive is the flip side of the coin. God promises great rewards for those who do obey Him. Right? So we don't just take the bad, we also take the good. God gives us great and awesome, breathtaking promises for those of you who obey Him. That's what i love the beauty of obedience is that it is ultimately for you ultimately for your best interest listen to deuteronomy 10 verse 12 to 13. moses this is in the old testament by the way so this is not the new covenant It's even true of the old covenant it says and now israel what does the lord your god require of you but to fear the lord your god to walk in all his ways to love him to serve the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. See, it's so beautiful. God's glory and our good are intertwined. Would you want peace of mind? Would you want joy? Would you want a clean conscience before God? Would you want a healthy marriage and a healthy church? Then obey God. Submit yourself to him and obey his commandments. Again, Thomas Watson in in his book Ten Commandments gives a great illustration of this. He says, There is love in every command. It is as if a king would command one of his subjects to dig in a gold mine and then let him keep the gold for himself. I love that. Okay, do this thing for me. Dig in the gold mine for me. And when, okay, I'm done. Okay, keep the gold, it's yours. That's how God is right. That is how he's like. He commands us and we just get a million times more than what we lost. Like it cannot, That's why some of those missionaries who lost their children, their wives in, in mission work and their ministries. If you look at their lives like, Yo, you've sacrificed so much. I, say, I haven't sacrificed a thing. I've lost nothing. Because I'm going to heaven. God has given me Everything. Is that not one motive that would encourage you to obey Him? Think about the rich rewards that God promises to those who love Him and those who obey Him. Lastly, the last motive I just want to highlight for us. It is also a great honor. It's a great honor to obey God. It's a great honor to serve the King. Think about the Lord. Think about who He is. He's the Creator. He's our sustainer. He made us and He made all things to glorify Himself. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He is our Redeemer, our Healer, our Father. He gave us His Son. He gave us the Spirit to dwell inside of us. Look at the greatest sunset that you've ever imagined and only see a shadow of His beauty and His glory. Stand on the highest mountain and look at the most breathtaking view and only get a glimpse of the sense of His greatness and His majesty. Look at the billions of stars, the countless numbers of stars in the night and think about God's vast knowledge that He has given each one of them a name and holds them in His hands and He knows the number of the hair on your head. And then look at the pinnacle of His glory. Look at the place where God was most glorified. Look at the cross of Jesus. Look at the cross. There God the Son died under the wrath of God for all our sins. There the Son was forsaken by the Father for what we did. There we see the perfect justice of God and the perfect love of God meeting at the same place. There we see the entire Old Testament fulfilled. The Lamb of God slaughtered for our sins. The high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies. The King of Kings and the creator of heaven and earth hanging on a tree that he himself created. The infinite became an infant. The divine became despised. For us, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at the resurrection. Think of his resurrection. There we see Christ conquering death. His resurrection is our assurance that one day is coming again and he will make all things new a new heaven, new earth in which righteousness dwells forever and ever and ever. Shall we not count it a great joy to serve this king? Listen, beloved, self-pity is a sin. It's a sin. It doesn't become a Christian. It doesn't fit with what we know, with what we have. Again, Thomas Watson said this. Again, I love his pictures here. He says, it is more honor to serve God than to have kings serve us. It is more honor to be the slave of Christ than for kings to be our slaves. Oh beloved, let us worship this God in the beauty, in the beauty of holiness, in obedience. Let us commit ourselves again to obey him, no matter what he asks of us, in every area. Let us count it a great joy. Let us, when we give away all to follow Christ, see it as nothing compared to what we have. Beloved, consider your life for a moment consider what is your attitude towards God? What is your essential attitude towards His commandments? Do you feel that you are free to choose which commandment you like, which commandment you like to do? Are there certain areas of your life which you have not yet submitted to God in obedience to Him? Just want to clarify, we do not mean here that we are going to be perfect in our obedience, right? No, none of us Can give perfect obedience to God. That's impossible. But are we striving for perfection? Are we striving for holiness? Are we striving to not make excuses for our sin? But to fight it. To cut off our hand. To pluck out our eye. To serve the king. To love him. So search your heart this afternoon. Repent if necessary. Come to Christ for forgiveness. This king is gracious. And then trust in Him, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this afternoon. We thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord, that it is not unclear we should obey you it's not unclear that we should live holy and that it's not optional for us for without holiness no one will see the Lord only those who do the will of the father will, will enter into the kingdom of heaven so father give us a humility help us to humble ourselves Lord every sin is a sin of pride help us to humble ourselves before you To truly commit ourselves to you in every area of our lives. To fear your name for you see everything and you know everything. But above all to trust and rest and rely on Jesus, your son. Thank you that he is enough. That we don't need anybody or anyone outside of Christ to save us, sanctify us and to strengthen us for our obedience. Lord please, please be merciful to us. And protect us from our sin. Protect us from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over us. And I pray, Lord, for our church here, Lord. I pray that you will truly bind our hearts in love for you and for one another. We pray this for your name's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen.